Once again, we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 19. Our specific reading this morning is going to be verses 9 through 21. But I want to say a few things before we actually uh, read this passage. We're coming to it a second time. Uh, It's the very place where Elijah, God's prophet, is at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And we recall why he is here. Six weeks earlier, Elijah had stood on Mount Carmel. There he was God's voice. He was God's representative. He was there in a great challenge against the 450 prophets of Baal. At the prayer of Elijah, God sent fire from the skies to consume the sacrifice and the altar and all of the water. To prove that God is God, not Baal. Then in obedience to the law of God, Elijah put to death all the 450 false prophets who had led Israel astray, led Israel to break their covenant with God. And then we have the sevenfold, seven times prayer of Elijah. And in answer to that prayer, a torrential rain was sent from God to end the three and a half years of drought and the curse upon the land. And then by the spirit of God, Elijah outraced on foot King Ahab's chariot back to the city of Jezreel, demonstrating that the true God was truly God, not Baal. But then King Ahab speaks to Queen Isabel. Uh, The Baal and Asherah worshiping pagan promoters of all the the murderous anti-true God campaign against God's prophets, Jezebel. King Ahab tells Jezebel, all that Elijah had done, leaving God, leaving Yahweh, the true God, entirely out of the story. And then Jezebel sends a death threat to Elijah. And upon hearing it, Elijah runs for his life. Then we read that he wishes to die, not by the hand of Jezebel, but by the hand of God. And so he prays in that way believing that his value and his service to God has come to an end. All that he has hoped for, all that he's prayed for, you know, a great revival, a great repentance when God proves himself to be God, none of that has happened. All of his service feels like failure. And so he expresses it that way, that he is no better than his father's. But then after that, an angel of the Lord ministers to Elijah twice and sends him on a 40-day journey down into the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula down to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And that's the point we come to as we begin reading at verse 9. And there he, Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind 
tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face and his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the, yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand the word which your Holy Spirit has inspired. Father, we pray that we might fully and always trust and believe that the words of Scripture are truly your word, that we might remember what our Lord Jesus said, Quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we pray, let us hear your word, let us feed, in Jesus' name, amen. The title of the sermon is The God of Salvation and Service. And in the worship notes, you can read the guiding theme of this series, which we have had in the notes for weeks and weeks and weeks. It's about paganism, and there are lots of ways to describe our Western world and culture. Uh, we can describe it as a departure from the biblical and Judeo-Christian way of seeing the world, which dominated for Western Europe for a thousand years. Uh, we can describe it as postmodernism. We can describe it as post-Christian. Biblically, the most accurate way of seeing the culture and seeing the world today is to see it in the presence and light of paganism which has always been the antithesis of the Christian faith. 
which is why the Apostle Paul begins his great exposition of the gospel in the book of Romans with addressing the key elements of paganism in Romans 1 and 2. Paganism is always a rejection of the true knowledge of the true God. It is always a replacement religion. It is always a worship and love of the world. And it always attacks what God has told us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 about creation, about human identity made in the image of God, about male and female, and how they were designed for marriage and the one flesh relationship, and how that is designed for the procreation of image bearers, and how all of this, the human race, designed to worship the one true God and him alone. And paganism uses every kind of lie to attack and to destroy these truths. And we find these attacks in our culture. And even more heartbreaking, we find them also within the church. The bringing in of pagan ideas and trying to call them biblical or Christian. Now, just to note, what's happened in our day is nothing new with respect to the history of the Christian faith. There has always been the, 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 the weight of pagan ideas pushing themselves into the church. Nevertheless, all throughout Christian history, uh, the calling of believers and our calling today is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are biblically and what we're called to do biblically, that which God has given to us in the scriptures. Even as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, the very purpose of the church is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, that's the basic point of view we bring to the story of Elijah. As we read through these stories, that we preach through these stories, They've always been about God, his people, and paganism. And now as we look a second time at Elijah out at Mount Horeb, I want us to think more about that, that more focused theme, where we have said that the main teaching week by week has been less about Elijah and far more about God, which is to say it is about what God does with us and for us, in us, and to us. To grow us in our faith, so that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on our behalf. And that as bleak as the situation may seem, God is faithful to ensure both our salvation and service to his glory. So here are three things I want us to see as we revisit the story of Elijah at this particular point. Uh, I want us to see these key ideas, uh, point A being this week's message, B and C being messages that will come uh, after Jared preaches next week. Essentially this, God, who begins his work in his redeemed, finishes it. That's what we'll reflect upon this week. Secondly, God who saves by electing grace keeps those he saves. And thirdly, God who calls to gospel service makes them, those who are called, willing to go, willing to serve. Now, we're going to see each of these points and what happens between God and Elijah. But they illustrate key truths that are given to us in the New Testament. So I want to begin with this first idea. 
God, who begins his work and is redeemed, finishes it. This is another way of stating what Paul says in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Now, we've memorized this in several different translations. You may have a King James Version memorization. You may have a New American Standard. You may have an NIV, or you may have an ESV. But I've memorized it mostly in the New International Version, so I would state it this way. Paul writes, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That when God starts his saving work and those he redeems, he will also finish him. And we see this principle in Elijah being recommissioned here, this recommissioning story that takes place at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Here is Elijah. He's lodging in a cave. And the word of the Lord comes to him and asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, before we think about Elijah's response, I want us to consider the human heart of Jezebel, her spiritual heart. Because her heart represents the essential heart of Israel and the essential heart of fallen human beings. That is to say, how did she respond to these clear and convincing proofs of God's existence, God's reality, over and against Baal's failure, and Baal's failure to do anything in defense of his own worshipers. How did she respond? There were signs and wonders and miracles. There was the clearest demonstration. Beyond the demonstration of God's existence in creation, God went exceptionally out of the way to prove his existence to all Israel at Mount Carmel, even so that he, Ahab could take a faithful report to Jezebel. What do we see? She's not persuaded. Now, we need to note that Jesus encountered the same kind of stubbornness and will not to believe in the face of his miracles and in the face of his signs. For instance, if you were to think about John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus is saying this to the Jewish leadership. He says, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, meaning John the Baptist. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Or later, John chapter 10. 24, 25, and 37, and 38. Jesus is speaking again to the Jewish leadership. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. But earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, as John is writing about Christ coming into the world, uh, the Father loving the world, giving up his only begotten Son that the world might be saved. John makes this comment 
about what is happening and then what we're going to see happen and transpire as the light of the world in Christ is consistently rejected by the Jews. So this is what John writes, chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So here is the proper analysis of Jezebel's heart. She refuses to believe what is so clear rationally because she has this very deep-seated moral issue. She loves the darkness. She will not listen to reason because reason would take her to the light. But reason will not give her what her evil heart desires. And therefore, in the face of the clearest and most compelling evidence that God is God and Baal is not, she stubbornly refuses to believe. Now, in contrast, I want us to think about Elijah's heart. At this point at Mount Horeb, Elijah's fear and his sense of failure and his desire to die after six weeks of travel in the wilderness to Mount Horeb, have given away, have given way to a God-centered point of view. Here is the key element in Elijah's heart. It is dismay over God being despised. That's the key idea in verse 9 that's repeated in verse 14 when Elijah says, I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. Now, I'm going to tell you, it's, it's worthless to look at any modern dictionary concerning the word jealousy today. Um, our elder Michael Hudson, years ago, made the clear distinction for me, and he didn't get it from the dictionary, he got it from a much older understanding of these words, that the word jealousy and the word envy are anything but synonyms. Envy has to do with your desire for things that don't belong to you. Jealousy has everything to do with your desire to protect those things that are yours. So a man who finds someone flirting with his wife is jealous. He's not envious. Uh, the man who's flirting with a married woman is envious. He's not jealous. He's lusting after what he should not have. Jealousy is deep protection over what is rightfully yours. Elijah is jealous for the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. Now, this is the most important part of Elijah's character spiritually as a believer and as a prophet. This is the deep, deep work of God in Elijah's life. In the second commandment of the Ten Commandments, in that commandment where God forbids all idolatry as false witness, he does so because of this reason. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, a better English word for us, because the word jealousy has been destroyed by conflating envy and jealousy, a better word for us in English would be zealous. God has an infinite zeal for what belongs to him exclusively, and that is worship. 
Worship belongs to God alone. And this is now Elijah's testimony. What moves Elijah now above all else in his service to God is this. He is zealous for what belongs to God and to God alone. Now this is the great work that God does and those he redeems. They come to identify with God's own zeal for what belongs to God. Now, in response, Elijah is commissioned, verses 15, 16, and 17. And this recommissioning says two things. Even though Elijah had, six weeks earlier, considered himself to be a dismal failure, we know from that passage that God was not finished with him at all. God took Elijah from the point of despair, fed him by the bread of heaven given to him by angels, brought him to Mount Horeb. And this new commission from God shows that though Elijah fled and feared and wanted to die, his service had not yet ended. There was ministry yet to be done. God was still going to use him, especially as his own heart is now properly aligned with the heart of God. And then the second thing we see, God's calling to Elijah remains the same. He has been and he continues to be a prophet of judgment. Elijah's mission was to introduce God's judgment against Israel because of their apostasy. It is as though the drought and Mount Carmel were kind of a test for Israel. And Israel, for the most part, did not pass this test. There was no repentance. There was no national revival. There was no putting away of the false gods. But Elijah's calling remains the same. In essence, God says to him, you will leave here to do what I have ordained for judgment against Israel. Now, I want to step back from Elijah for a moment and think about the Christian life. Because we see that Elijah's own life spiritually had the greatest sense of ascending to the height, not just literally Mount Carmel, but spiritually in terms of walking with God, being used by God in such an incredibly powerful way, the, the triumph in every way on Mount Carmel, and then plunging within the same day into being terrorized by Queen Jezebel and her death threat against him. Which, in, in one day's time, in 24 hours, a polar swing completely, which testifies to us that one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets had what? A human nature like us. He was a jar of clay. Which tells us the Christian life, as we live it, is never one level or consistent experience throughout our lives. That's important for us to reflect upon. It's important for us to realize that we are vulnerable 
uh, to all of the attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 17, verse 3, we read these words, that nevertheless, believers may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, and the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. But that same chapter begins not on the negative note, but on the positive note by saying, they whom God hath accepted in the beloved who are effectually called and sanctified by the spirit can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Which is to say, God, who begins his work in his redeemed, will finish it. And he does finish it. So think back then to Philippians 1, 6. In whatever way you have memorized it, where Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why is this important for us? Because the Christian life is never one level set of experiences where we begin walking with Jesus and we're able to sing and say, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. Jesus saves and keeps me. He's the one I'm living for. Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. And I can hardly even recite that song without going, you got to be kidding. <laughs> I know because of what the Bible says that every day Jesus is with me, but every day is not sweeter than the day before. Some days, some seasons seem to be getting worse and worse and worse. And sometimes what's going on around me and sometimes the circumstances in life and sometimes the temptations to doubt, to fret, to worry are huge, are huge. And, and the sweetness of life disappears. And, and the glory of Christ seems to be so obscured. I will tell you, brothers and sisters, when I look back on the last three years and all that we as God's people have gone through with getting dislocated from one another because of COVID and social distancing and, and, and wearing masks and not being able to socialize and fellowship and spend time with each other like we're used to. Hard. Very hard. And hard to always see where Jesus was in the midst of all of us. And I have felt my own life in Christ, not looking like a perfect sine wave, because <laughs> that's a fairly predictable thing, but looking like those frequency re readers in terms of uh, sound things, which goes up and down, up and down, but they're really crazy and strange, you know? Sometimes it's a long thing, sometimes it's a short thing. It's just hard and difficult 
to what? To stay focused with eyes fixed on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. When you have good friends die because of COVID, it hits you hard. When you go through a season when a new brother-in-law that you've just begun to really get to know and love suddenly dies. When you leave your homeland <laughs> for beautiful North Carolina, it's a dislocation. When you lose the fellowship of the saints you love so much, the Christian life is never a level, easy path. And what do we need to hold on to? The story of Elijah tells us about a great man through whom God did great things, who reached the point where he felt like he wanted to die. Not at the hand of an evil queen, but at the hand of his God and Savior. Let me die. I'm useless. My service is over. It's at that point, and however that may happen in your own life, that you have to remember that the work that God begins in us, he will carry it on, and he will finish it. Because when God starts his saving work in us, it is on the basis of the full and final atonement of Christ on the cross through his grace, and by our faith in his son, he has begun a work in us that he will finish. And this is because the love of God is eternal and free and unchangeable. We are told in Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love God predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to his purpose and will. And this is because the son who died is also our intercessor and high priest, as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And this is to remember the spirit who caused us to be born again, who bears witness to our own sonship. As Paul writes in Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The gospel is the wonderful news that the God who has begun his saving work in us will carry it on to completion 
and he will finish it. And all of God's people will be together again in glory. To the praise of the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you and praise you for the work which you do to work in us, to keep us, to sustain us, to maintain us. When we are low and hurting and feel so far distant from you, for you to come again and feed us, as it were, even like an angel, angelic messenger giving us the bread of life, we find in your word, once again, that the light in which we see light, the truth in which we see truth, and the nourishment for our souls, which we so deeply need. Father, we thank you for all that you've given to us at the cost of your son, for the purchase of our redemption, the work begun. Even when you chose us in Jesus before the foundations of the world, the work that you will carry on to completion and to the glorious return of the Lord Jesus. Help us to rest then and trust you for all these things. And when our faith burns low, help us to remember there is ultimately and truly a sense in which every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. In his name, amen.